When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Where am I going to go where patriarchy doesn't exist? You know, where is this magical island that is free of misogyny? I will go there. Tell me where it is. <laughs> um, but it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist anywhere. And so it makes the most sense to try to reform your own culture and your own place and the space where you are most fluent in the language. Hey y'all, welcome to Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And you know, Kristen, as feminists, we're all about reforming patriarchal culture and claiming space for ourselves, but it can be really hard to do that in an up-close, personal way. And today, we're talking to a woman who did just that. She put all her feminist cards on the table at the risk of losing her most important community, her religion. So the first question I have for you is a, is a hard-hitting one inspired by your Twitter account. Nice. I need to know how you live without coffee. I... I, th I feel like it's one of those things that you have to develop a taste for earlier on in life. And I never did, obviously, because Mormons think drinking coffee is a sin. I'd, when I explain the quirkiness of Mormonism, I'm like, yeah, it's basically an anti-coffee cult. <laughs> Kate Kelly grew up avoiding caffeine in the Church of Latter-day Saints. And Caroline, can you just give us a snapshot of this Made in America religion? Well, it's big. <laughs> it's the fourth largest church in the U.S. It's relatively new. Joseph Smith established it in the 19th century after he supposedly got the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, which became their central text, the Book of Mormon. And it's conservative. It, it has rules about no drugs, no drinking, dressing modestly. But above all, it's a patriarchal religion led by dudes. And Kate got a lot out of Mormonism. In fact, she still does. It's the foundation of her family, many of her friendships. And she still doesn't drink coffee, y'all. But she did get to a point where her love for her church turned into a desire for it to do better. So today we're asking, how do you confront the patriarchy where you are? Specifically, if where you are is in a conservative patriarchal religion. And what does it mean to be a feminist in faith traditions like this? Kate grew up Mormon in Oregon, where there weren't a ton of other Mormons around. Her small church was a central part of the socializing that Kate and her family did. There were Oregon Trail-style reenactments of the original Mormon settlers, which honestly sounds kind of fun. Instead of family game night, there was family Mormon lesson night. And for girls, there was plenty to learn from a young age about being a good Mormon wife. 
I remember when I was a young woman, we did an activity at church where we took a picture of ourselves and like in a wedding dress. And then we made a, a photo of us in a wedding dress and put the temple over it, which is the place where you would get married. And then you're supposed to carry that around with you so that you're always thinking about who you're going to get married to as you grow up. What did your wedding dress look like? Do you remember? <laughs> I don't remember. I think it was just kind of like a mishmash of 90s wedding dresses. So it sounds like you were really into this. Oh, completely. What, yeah. what did you like about uh, being a Mormon growing up? For me, it was something that was really special about me. And so I, it's, it's a feeling of like exceptionalism and also having all the answers. The answer to every question is read the Book of Mormon. But... It's just there's something very comforting about not having to wonder and feeling like you belong to an institution that is so unique and so special. Kate's parents were an anomaly in their Mormon community. Her mom worked outside the home as a lawyer, and both of her parents encouraged Kate that she could be whatever she wanted when she grew up. But at church, it was a different story. According to Mormons, motherhood is the only role for women because that's what they were assigned in the eternities. And it is the highest calling. So it's like, you don't need a job. You already have the highest calling, child rearing. What is the ultimate role for men then, according to church doctrine? So unlike Catholicism or other faith traditions, in Mormonism, you get the priesthood when you're 12 years old and you're a man. So it's not like you go to the seminary and you study or you get a degree or your special calling or it's a chosen few people. Like it's literally every active Mormon male person has the priesthood and no Mormon women have the priesthood. Yeah, so you could say Mormons have a definite gendered hierarchy. Mm, okay, very glass ceiling it sounds like. Or stained glass ceiling. There you go. But Kate was really attached to her Mormon background. She wanted to be the best, most loved by a God, most revered by adults in the church. Just all-star Mormon girl. <laughs> gold star Mormon. Gold star Mormon, exactly. So she did what gold star Mormons do and went to Brigham Young University, BYU, which is the Mormon university. And then she decided to go on a mission. Yeah, and a mission is a two-year journey for, for young Mormons where they get to go out into the world, promote their beliefs, but not only that, like actively try to convert people to Mormonism. And going on this two-year journey actually gets you status as a man in the church. Kate wanted that equal status. She wanted to be recognized by the church as someone as pious as the men. So she spends two years in Spain learning Spanish, not drinking sangria, and forming really meaningful relationships with people very different from her. But she starts to notice something. Even on their missions, men and women just weren't equal. We would, you know, contact strangers. We would teach people. We would hand out copies of the Book of Mormon. We would do all the same things. But when we found success and when we found someone who wanted to get baptized, we basically turned it over to them. And they would perform all of the rituals. They would be their leaders. They, would, they were the leaders over us. And something about that experience really started sitting with me very poorly. Now, Kate didn't keep completely silent about this. She questioned her church leaders. She brought it up in discussions with friends. 
But it was still sort of simmering under the surface, only trickling out here and there. When Kate came back from her mission, she started getting involved in activism at BYU. Afterwards, she does get married, but instead of becoming a housewife, she goes to law school, which is kind of radical, and on top of that, a secular law school. And that takes her to Western Sahara, Zimbabwe, the Dominican Republic, and Mexico, advocating for human rights. Meanwhile, Kate remained active in and devoted to her church. The irony was not lost on her. I was participating in an institution that fundamentally discriminated against me and people like me. And so I felt almost this, I felt like the crash of that cognitive dissonance where I thought, you know, I'm speaking up for all these people. Who is speaking up for me? And Caroline, you can probably see where this is heading, but it took an unlikely catalyst to motivate Kate into action. We know we can bring this country back. I'm Mitt Romney. I believe in America. And I'm running for president of the United States. All of a sudden, Mormonism is being talked about by the whole country. You'd think Kate would be excited by the possibility that the U.S. might have its first Mormon president. Hey! But she wasn't. Kate says the media focus was all about how Mormons are just like us. Mitt Romney's not a polygamist. He he has a a normal family guy. Look at all those children. Mormons love Jell-O. Like, Kate could not believe what she was seeing. Because to her, these stories were missing the point. Which is that Mitt Romney participates in an institution that fundamentally discriminates against women at every level and doesn't allow them to be leaders. I felt like that was more politically relevant. And yet no one was discussing it. So after the Romney... Uh, near miss, <laughs> we, we almost had a Mormon president, um, I decided, like, somebody has got to do something about this. And finally, I was like, dang, I am somebody. <laughs> like, I've got to do something about this. After chatting it out with a friend, Kate decided, okay, I want full equality for Mormon women. And the only way to access official leadership and to perform sacred rights is to be ordained to the priesthood. And so I said, okay, we'll call it ordained women. How did it feel to say that? Yeah, it felt crazy. It's hard to explain to outsiders how extremely revolutionary those two words are, ordained women. You could count on your hand, a single hand, how many people would publicly advocate for female ordination before we started this group. The church has a long history of repression and retaliatory tactics against people who speak up. And so people are afraid to voice any counter-opinion. And and we should note that Kate wasn't the first Mormon feminist, not by a long shot. I mean, it goes back to the founding of the religion, really, where you have Mormons involved in the suffragist movement. You have a Mormon feminist movement start in the 1970s, along with the broader women's lib movement. But it, it has been really hard for Mormon feminists to find each other and 
organize before the internet. So when Kate was starting Ordain Women, it was still really hard to find the other Mormon feminists out there. It was like old school organizing, like calling people, like finding someone who had written an article about it in the 80s and then like finding that person and then asking them if they would do it and then asking them if they knew anyone else. And then and it was also so secretive, like we had to be so secretive about it. I, I wouldn't even send emails or texts about it because I didn't want anyone to have any written documentation to screenshot or share. But she did find people. And they introduced her to other people, and soon they were holding conference calls, which were, you know, a little boring and always awkward because conference calls. (laughs) But it was also really exhilarating. Mormon women aren't used to being in charge of themselves. So it was this totally unique experience where we were our own bosses. So it was super elating to participate with other women and decide what to do with other women, and we never had to run it by a man. Their first action was making a website, ordainwomen.org. And they had a plan to post some videos that would sort of spoof this very big campaign from the Mormon church at the time. So the Mormon church has a campaign called I'm a Mormon, which is basically designed to convince outsiders that we're super normal and hip. I'm a husband. I'm a father, family man, I'm a snowboarder, I'm a skateboarder, my name's Jeremy Jones, and I'm a Mormon. We totally skateboard, guys. It's cool. We decided to reverse that campaign and tell people our stories and our connections to Mormonism and then say, and we also think women should be ordained. My name is Kate Kelly. I'm an aunt to four amazing nieces. I'm an international human rights law attorney. I'm a lifelong faithful Mormon and returned missionary, and I believe that Mormon women should be ordained to the priesthood. It was very important to us to assert our true identities, which were active, faithful, orthodox Mormon women, and so that they would know this was coming from the inside. So with the help from her husband, who fully supported her cause, and another friend, Kate shot the videos, they made the website, and on Sunday, March 17th, 2013, they went live. And I remember the day I launched the website. I remember clicking launch and going to church. Like, I, you know, on Sundays I went to church. And it was a very surreal experience because obviously not everyone in the congregation had seen the website yet. It had been like two hours. But I knew that my truth was out there and I was being my authentic self for almost the first time ever in Mormonism. And so I felt like I was stepping out on the ledge saying like, this is who I am. I'm going to be me And hopefully I can also still be Mormon. She's taking a major risk here. Yeah, I mean, Kate mentioned the church's history of retaliation. They take disciplinary action against anyone seen as turning against the church or leading other people away from it. They've excommunicated scholars who've explored and publicly discussed issues of theology and gender roles and feminism. And it's not permanent. It's just that you have to be willing to say that, like, everything you did was wrong and that you repent for it. It's not really a step that a lot of 
passionate activists are always willing to take. So these were the kind of stakes that Kate was up against when she went live with ordained women. And word spread pretty quickly throughout the Mormon community. And to Kate's surprise, the response was kind of awesome. People started uploading their photos to the ordained women website and coming out in support of female ordination. We started getting flooded with profiles from all over the world, from all over the country, from Georgia and Florida and California and Japan and Germany and Brazil and Australia and New Zealand and all of these women. Suddenly, when someone said, I think that women should be ordained and I think we should be equal in the church, so many people joined us. So on the heels of the success, ordained women planned their first direct action to coincide with an event called the General Conference. And that's capital G, capital C, General Conference. Right. So a little explainer. The General Conference is a semi-annual meeting conference uh, in Salt Lake City. And there is one session in particular called the Priesthood Session that only men are allowed to attend. Because only men can become priests. Correct. And all of this is going down at the temple in Salt Lake City, Temple Square, which is worth a Google image if y'all don't know what it looks like because it, first of all, is pristine. (laughs) It's very clean. And it's all centered around the temple, which is where little elementary school Kate had made that wedding collage about. But it also contains other buildings, including the tabernacle, which is where that men's only priesthood session was happening. So the protest action that Kate and ordained women came up with was to physically show up at the conference in October 2013, go to the tabernacle, and ask to be let into this meeting. So I remember walking in in Salt Lake. All the streets are based around the temple. So I was walking on the street North Temple in Salt Lake, and I was in the front because I somebody had to go first. <laughs> but I also was like, oh, my goodness. Like, is anyone following me? I don't know. And there was one woman. Her name was Julia. She came all the way from Germany for the action. And she, I just remember she was standing behind me. And I feel like I'll, um, you know, never forget this experience. But she stood behind me and she said, Keep walking, keep walking. We're all behind you. We're behind you. Keep walking. Don't turn around. Don't turn around. The whole time. And those two blocks felt like a marathon length, essentially. And I didn't turn around. Um, And I kept walking. 200 men and women showed up and were walking behind Kate. As they got close to the meeting hall, one Mormon woman who worked for the church approached them and asked them to stop. But Kate pushed past. It's hard to understand how hard it is to confront that socialization, to be obedient, to listen to authority figures, to obey and comply. And so even in that moment— You know, for a split second, I was like, maybe we should leave. They told us to leave. Um, But I didn't. And so I kept going. And everyone followed me. And we went up to the door. And one by one, all of us 
decided that we were each going to have our experience of asking. So every I started, and I said, you know, I'm a Mormon woman. I served a mission for the church. I got married in the temple. I have always paid a full tithe. I am very active in my congregation, and I think I should be allowed to participate in this meeting. And then we all, every single one, went up, asked to be admitted, and then was turned away. I think the action was a success, not because we got in, we didn't, but because each of us realized the predicament that we were in in a new and visceral way and became more committed to gender parity as a result. So we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'm sure that there will be a happy ending waiting for us. And the church is like, Kate, you are so right. Oh, Caroline, would that it were. (laughs) But stick around because we'll find out what actually happened in just a minute. we're back. When we left off, Kate and the other marchers had taken a huge public stand. And when I say public, I mean the world was sort of watching this happen. The conference was being broadcast online for the first time ever, and journalists had shown up to cover both the conference and the protest. Despite all the press attention, though, this wasn't about spectacle for ordained women. At the time, it was for me a very personal experience. And for all of those women, because we had never experienced confronting patriarchy one-on-one in person. We experienced discrimination every week, every Sunday, at church, every month, every year. But we had never had to stand up in front of a man and say, I deserve to be your equal. And so, for me, it was a very personal experience where I embodied this quiet rebellion. And I don't think I was thinking about people reading about the story all around the world. I was thinking about, oh, man, you know, my in-laws are going to find out about this. Spoiler, Caroline, they did (laughs) because everyone found out about it. And there were, of course, people who were very unsupportive. Kate received a tornado of negative feedback in the form of online comments on news articles, calling Kate delusional, a meddler, saying she should just leave the church already. But she didn't. Kate went to church, and she told her leaders that she was an open book and happy to answer any questions. And in the meantime, ordained women stayed active with Kate at the helm. After the first protests, they received even more support, and they distributed packets for local discussion groups and continued collecting profiles for Mormons around the world. And this whole time, Kate's like, hey, this might actually be working. And I, at the time, was filled with such completely delusional optimism that now was the time, that the church could change, that we were in a different era— that they would realize we were right and that we were sincere. And so I very, very much felt that this could actually make a difference. Why do you describe it as delusional? Well, I think I 
gave too much credit to the institution. And I trusted in patriarchy to do the right thing, which, heads up, gals, never a good idea. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> not going to turn out how you want. Six months later, in April 2014, a crowd twice the size staged a repeat protest at the next general conference. But this time, the church was ready. They banned all media from Temple Square. They even tried to close the gates. But the women snuck through thanks to a tourist who held the door open because he had no idea what was going on. And it wasn't as publicized, but Kate still felt like it was just as successful. And maybe because of that success things started to go south. And it was after that action that they, I was contacted by my leaders that I would be put on informal discipline, which eventually led to my trial. You heard right, a literal trial. The disciplinary notice was in May, and in June, the church tried Kate for something called apostasy. Which is kind of like heresy. Uh, Apostates are people who are accused of turning away from the church, going against its teachings, and corrupting the gospel's principles. And Kate in particular was in hot water for supposedly, quote, threatening to erode the faith of others. And even in this trial setting, that gender imbalance comes up again because... Men get to have witnesses speak on their defense at their trials, but women do not. Kate didn't go to her own trial because it was held in another state, but she did submit a written defense and 700 letters from people all around the world who wrote in support of her. Although she has no idea if the council actually read the letters or any part of her written defense. When the night of the trial rolled around, they held a vigil in Salt Lake City thinking that the decision would be released that night, but it wasn't. Kate got an email the following day while she was at a board meeting for ordained women. So I said to the other women sitting around this big table with me, should I read the decision? And they were all like, uh, yeah. (laughs) Like, (laughs) this is going to change things. So I started reading it on my phone, and I was just scrolling down, trying to get to the point of, you know, the decision— And I saw that I had been excommunicated, and I just collapsed in a pile of tears, basically on the floor, and the meeting was pretty much over because we had put so much hope and effort and desire into changing an institution that we loved, you know, an institution where we were raised, an institution that we believed in, and it turned so viciously against us and against me personally that a lot of hope was deflated on that day. I remember, you know, people thought, to this day, people are like, well, you knew you would get excommunicated, right? Um, And I just didn't. You know, I just had such a high hope. And so I might have been the last person on the planet who thought I would not get excommunicated at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But again, I think that's that delusional optimism, you know, just really wanting things to change. So what was the process then for extricating yourself from the church? Like, what did excommunication mean? So, you know, I needed one day. It was all these people wanted to interview me. And at this point, it was an international news story. But I just needed, like, one day to mourn. 
So I said, I'm not going to do any interviews today. I just need like a few hours to myself. So I went home and Mormons wear special undergarments when they go through the temple as an indication of their commitment to God. So basically I took all of my Mormon underwear and I put it in a garbage bag and I did not throw it away. <laughs> Yet again, illustrating my delusional optimism, I had two levels of appeal. So I was going to appeal to the regional level and then appeal to the prophet. And so I thought, you know what? If I win my appeal, I don't want to buy all new underwear. So I'm keeping these. So I kept I kept my Mormon underwear just in case. And where did I, you keep that garbage bag of under your my underwear? bed? Yeah, I kept it under my bed. Excommunication in the Mormon church is a heartbreaking process. I mean, despite the fact that it is like relatively common, it's essentially spiritual death. You're no longer considered part of the Mormon church. Your name is removed from church records. And all of the sacraments that have been performed on you are kind of null and void, like your baptism and your marriage. And since Mormons believe that like marriage and family is for eternity, that you will be with your family in heaven. Like that is a huge consequence of being excommunicated. Kate also couldn't pray out loud, tithe, or even go to the temple. And while ordained women had grown into a movement, Kate was the only one excommunicated, almost to make an example of her. It was enough of a message to the other women involved to just single Kate out. And it was a reminder of the power that the church had. They can take everything away from you. They can take your family away from you. As soon as I was excommunicated, my parents were asked to meet with their leaders, and their leaders took away their callings, took away their temple recommends, which means they can't attend the temple, and really socially ostracized them to the point where in the meeting they said, but you're still permitted to love your daughter even though you can't associate with her. So after that experience... What did Mormonism mean to you at this time? Like, why did you why did you want to stay instead of just yeah. saying, okay, well, you know, my worst fears were confirmed. Yeah. See ya. Yeah. I'm just the kind of person who digs in and tries to make things better. You know, you hear that all the time about progressives. Like, if you don't like it in America, just move to France. <laughs> um, or whatever, but you are American. You know, you don't speak that language. You don't belong to that culture. You can't get a job there. You don't have a visa. Like, there's lots of reasons why you can't just leave. And so I was most fluent in the language of Mormonism. It was my most intimate space and community. And so it made the most sense for me to try and change that place. What kind of response did you get from uh from your supporters and fr really from the Mormon community at large? Were there, were people outraged? Um, from supporters, I heard women frequently describe it as when we were excommunicated. Mm. It was very much experienced as a collective because we all had put so much on the line and many women more than I had. 
because they lived in Mormon communities. They depended on their husbands for their well-being. They had Mormon children. They, you know, they had a lot on the line. And so when I was excommunicated, everyone felt the sting. Um, the larger Orthodox Mormon community is, to put it mildly, extraordinarily judgmental. <laughs> and so, the you know, the thing, immediately Mormons start talking about how I'm wearing a sleeveless shirt and I must have been preparing to be excommunicated because obviously I'm just a Jezebel. And, you know, immediately, as soon as the church came down against me, Mormons in the larger community started the barrage of vitriol and hate. So after that moment, what happened to ordained women and and the membership? Did did other folks stay in the church? Did people leave? Um, after I was excommunicated, the group continued uh, to do many things, including the next thing that we did was we did a photo series of women in the position of male authority. So like women baptizing, women performing healing blessings, women as the leaders of congregation. So we would stage these like huge photo reenactments. Um, and that was extremely empowering because we wanted women to be able to see what it would be like. So we continued on. We were continued to be creative, but it's hard to continue on advocating for the well-being of a system that you don't want to participate in. And so I continued for about a year after I was excommunicated, and finally I stepped down because even if Mormons ordain women tomorrow, I don't want to be part of the church, um, which is disappointing. It's hard for women who are religious to gain any ground because anytime you assert yourself, you're cut down so harshly that it makes you no longer want to participate in an institution that's voluntary. If you hadn't been excommunicated, do you think that you would still be involved with the church and with mm -hmm. uh, the, the ordained women movement? I'm a very loyal person in general. And there were so many things that I loved about Mormonism, including the community and the focus on family and all of these other things. You know, no one thing and no one person is all bad or all good. It's always filled with nuance. And that nuance includes wonderful and also devastating truths. And so I feel like if I hadn't been excommunicated, I probably would still be a Mormon because I felt such a fierce loyalty, if not to the church, to the people. And I still feel that loyalty to Mormon people. And in many ways, it's it's my people, whether or not they want me. <laughs> and so, yeah, I do strangely think that I still would be Mormon. Um, in that way, the church gave me a gift, which was a clean break from a very harmful institution. When we come back, we're going to find out what Kate calls herself now that she's no longer a Mormon.
So when we left off, Kate had just made the heartbreaking admission that she'd still be a Mormon if she hadn't been excommunicated. But she did have a ton of support. After she was kicked out of the church, hundreds of people staged a rally and a march on Pioneer Day, which is kind of like Mormon Fourth of July. It marks the anniversary of the Mormons making it out to Utah. And this group publicly resigned from the church en masse. Kate's parents never went back to church after she was excommunicated. They didn't want to be part of an institution that was so violent towards their own daughter. And now, almost four years later, Kate puts all her energy into other causes. She's still a lawyer, still focusing on women's rights and human rights. And she brought 500 women to the Women's March after Trump's inauguration, which was on a Saturday. On Monday, we came back to Utah, and I planned and executed the largest march in Utah state history on the Capitol. Wow. Yeah. So we we held (laughs) it. Yeah, like no big deal. Yeah, you know. (laughs) Um, So I, I, I would say I keep busy. And what role does faith play in your life right now? I, it's funny because a lot of people consider me to be a woman of faith and ask me to talk about religion, but I no longer consider myself to be a religious person. I, the way I describe it is apatheist. So basically I... I'm not an atheist because that's too much work and too certain about things. And I'm not a religious person. I just don't care to consider the question. Kate says she knows she left an important mark on the church. And one of her receipts is the New York Times obituary for the past leader of the Mormon church who died in January 2018. Kate was actually mentioned by name in that obit as someone who had challenged gender roles in Mormonism. And it said that he had not addressed the issue of women and women's standing in the church. And again, that never would have happened if we hadn't started this group and started this conversation, which did not exist except for, you know, esoteric Mormon publications and journals before this. So I think that's the legacy that I've left on the church, that the leaders of the church are forced to confront the issue of female ordination and of gender inequality in the church at every turn. And that's something I'm very, very proud of. Kate still hears from Mormon women almost every day. She gets letters and emails thanking her, crediting her for helping them speak up or leave the church. And Caroline, my conversation with Kate just brought up this bigger question for me of how to bridge the gaps between secular feminists And spiritual feminists, because the fact of the matter is, like, women are, and I say this with heavy air quotes, the more spiritual sex. Like, a lot of women are really invested in religion and faith, even more so than men. American women, for instance, are likelier than men to say they pray daily, to attend religious services at least once a week, and to say that religion is a very important part of their lives. So I wanted to get Kate's perspective on whether that's possible. A lot of times in feminist circles, religion is almost assumed to just be like, you know, it's like oil and water. Let's just not go there. But, you know, there are feminist communities within the Mormon church. Um, There are obviously like feminist communities among, you know, many faiths. So from your experience, like are feminism and faith compatible 
especially if that faith is a patriarchal one. Mm -hmm. I think the clash between feminists and faithful women is 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 a is to the absolute detriment of the feminist movement. I think women, religious women, are often dismissed or set aside or considered not as intelligent or really talked down to in feminist circles, and that's a shame. We will not see societal parity until religious traditions who have so much sway in our politics, in our society, are more equal. Until Catholicism changes, until Islam changes, until Mormonism, which would like to consider itself a major world religion, um, until Judaism, until evangelicalism, until all major faith traditions fully integrate women into every decision-making level in their structure, we will not see societal parity because we need religious women to be engaged. We need them to advocate for feminist principles and for parity, like we've seen so many examples of, you know, Roy Moore's election and Trump's election and all of these different things, like, you know, religious white women are the ones who are getting these people elected. Um, and so we need them as much as they need us. And so I think there needs to be a real reconciliation there needs to be a way for religious women to speak for themselves. They need to be able to assert their own identity. They need to be able to navigate their own cultures. They need to be able to fight for change within without the judgment of secular feminists. People would like to think, okay, well, religion is going to go away and then no longer be relevant. I simply do not see that happening, particularly in the near future in American politics. If anything, the influence is growing. And so I think, and laud feminists of faith for what they're doing, because changes in those institutions will not happen unless it comes from within. So they're they're doing God's work, so to speak. <laughs> um, and to be clear that God is a woman. Um, <laughs> so I think, yeah, it's just it's, it's just vital. It's vital to do that work. It's no longer my work. Um, but I, I put in my time. She did. She challenged the patriarchy where she was at, in her own community, face to face. And, and she didn't really win, but she sure as hell learned a lot from it. And now we get to all benefit from those lessons. It wasn't a total loss, though. I mean... They can't take away the fact that the ordained women movement happened. And, and it's still happening. And it's still happening. Yeah. I mean, the the kind of sad postscript to the story is that in the beginning of 2018, the Mormon church appointed a new prophet who is in his 90s and very traditional. Yeah. This was a big sign to a lot of hopeful Mormon feminists that uh, progress might not happen so quickly after all.
Yeah, and then a lot of those church leaders that they hoped would be more progressive still very much emphasize the traditional role of women and femininity. So it's left it's left some Mormons in in a quandary. And I am curious to hear from anyone listening who is in the LDS church and is feeling conflicted about what to do. Um, or if you are in any organized religion and feel like your feminism and faith clash— I feel like we owe it to all the work that Kate did do to keep bridging as much of this secular, spiritual, feminist gap as we can. Yeah, so email us, hello at unladylike.co. We cannot wait to hear your stories. And you can also call us and leave a message on the GalPal hotline at 2628-GALPAL. And if you want to get actually good news about women in the world every week, subscribe to our newsletter by going to unladylike.co slash newsletter. And y'all, don't forget to chat with us every week on Facebook Live. We host a little get-together every Friday at noon Eastern Time, and we love to get your questions live. So tune in, dip out of work if you have to, go into work late if you need to. Or just do it at work if you've got to. Sure, I mean, whatever you need. Just tune in, because this week we're going to be doing something a little special, so check it out. Abigail Keel is our senior producer. Mixing and sound design is by Casey Holford. Julie Subrin is our editor. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Ami May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radlett. Special thanks to Peter Clowney. And we're your hosts, Caroline Irvin and Kristen Conger. Next week, we're talking to a nanny who reclaimed her time. Did she get it? When you said you have a life? She did eventually. <laughs> because at that time, my bag would be on my shoulder and I'll be closer to the door. So eventually she recognized that I did have a life outside of her home. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss it. And as always, got a problem? Get unladylike. Next week on Unladylike, we host the podcast speaking in unison. unison. Yeah, I don't know what she's saying. Like watching her, your expected eyes. <laughs> what an emotional roller coaster. Um. Stitcher. 